Welcome to the Grove Community Church Sermon Podcast. We're a faith community seeking to change lives, change our community, and change the world. And now to this week's message. We hope you enjoy it. Today I got a little something for you. Would you watch this with me? Let the joyous news be spread, the wicked old witch at last is dead. So I don't know about you, but this is, I heard you say it, Jonathan, yes, it is a very strange movie and it's disturbing. I understand that. The, the whole flying monkey thing freaked me out as a kid forever. Willy Wonka is disturbing too, I get it. <laughs> yeah, yes, sorry, sorry Seth, but they are great movies, but they are creepy movies as a kid. Let's all get on the same page with that and at least admit that. Uh, But the Wicked Witch is dead. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was in David's shoes, when I found out that the king was dead, I would have been dancing like the the Lilliputians or whatever they were. What were their names? Munchkins. Lilliputians, that's from another book, right? The Munchkins. (laughs) What was the Lilliputians from? Gulliver's Travel, thank you, golly, sorry about that, the munchkins, the witch is dead, the wicked witch is dead, I would have been doing that if I was David and I found out that Saul, this guy who had been my nemesis, this guy who tried to kill me multiple times, that he was finally dead, it would have been rejoicing, and the army of men that I had at that time was 600 with David, would have been celebrating like, like the munchkins, We represent the Lollipop Guild, the Lollipop Guild, the Lollipop Guild. We would have had all that going on right there in the middle of the the desert. We would have been celebrating. But that's not what David did. Last week, as we continued our series on the life of David, we took a look at Saul's death, how he died, and the significance of his life not spent well. And what we could learn from from that. This week we're going to look at David's response to his death. And we've turned the corner in this narrative and we're now in 2 Samuel. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel and it's chapter 1, verses 1 through 16 is the section we're looking at today. Now remember, we had left David, he had just defeated the Amalekites and he had taken back all of the people that they had captured from David and his men. So all of their wives, all of their children, all their servants, they had captured them back, and they had gone and they had taken all of the stuff that they had raided from their homes, and they brought it back. Not only had they raided Ziklag, where David and his men lived, but they had done multiple towns and villages. And so David got all of that loot, and all of those people, and all of the... Uh, all of the sheep and whatever else they had animal-wise, and they brought it back, and it was a success. And we left David. Now we're going to pick up David's story. Saul died in the war, and now we're picking back up 
with David's story. Now, after the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag, and on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head, and when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. Does anybody know the significance of torn clothes and dirt on the head? Mourning. So when we read this, we think, oh gosh, that guy's had a rough day or a rough couple of days. Well, in fact, it had probably been a very rough three or four days. He had been at the battle. He had probably been in the battle. And we're going to find out a little bit later he was probably forced into the battle. But he had been in the battle. He had seen, all, he had seen Saul and, and his sons killed. And then he had seen uh, all, the, uh, all the rest of the Israelites fleeing. And this guy now has gone hundreds of miles, over a hundred miles, on foot, over two and a half days. And it's not easy ground. So when I read this the first time, I thought, okay, well, he was rough. I mean, he'd been in battle. Of course he's dirty. Of course his clothes are torn. But that's not what this means. It's a sign of lament. He has torn his clothes, and he's put dirt on his head. And he shows up, and he sees David, and he falls down and pays him homage. Verse 3, then David said to him, where do you come from? And he said, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, well, how did it go? Tell me. And the man answered, the people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. So he takes three statements, and with each statement he narrows in. Israel is lost and they fled. There are a lot of people who have been killed. Two of those people are Saul and Jonathan. Now, what do you remember about David and Jonathan's relationship? Besties. Did someone say besties? Yeah. Yeah. Besties forever. Yeah, exactly. So they were best friends, but they were more than brothers. They were, they were connected like, almost like the connection that you would have with a twin kind of connection. They were deeply connected. And so hearing this, David, of course gets a punch in the gut. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? Like, I want to figure this out. You've come from the battle. You're okay, but how do you know specifically that they died? And the young man told him, by chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and he called to me and he, and he said to me, well, I answered him, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? And I answered him, I'm an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me for anguish has seized me and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And look, I took the crown from his head and the armlet from his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. That's right. Now, 
there's a pregnant pause here for us. Understand, David knows no different at this point. David doesn't know what really happened. But we, as people who have listened into this story and have been following it, should get some red flags. What are some of the red flags that are strange about this man's story? Start naming them. What's, what's a, name a red flag to you on his story. All right, so first off, we know that Saul's armor bearer didn't kill him, but Saul killed himself. What else do we know? That's, what's a red flag on this story? He's an Amalekite. Right, we're going to get to that in a second. He's an Amalekite, which in this narrative, if you read Amalekite, immediately you're thinking opposite of God's plan. All right? So that's kind of how this narrative is built, so that when you see Amalekite, it triggers this guy's not trustworthy. All right, what else is a red flag? All right, yes, it is something to do with Mount Gilboa. Uh, that's where Jonathan and David died, but it's a mountain. What did he say was chasing or was bearing down on Saul on a mountain? Chariots. Try again. Chariots can't mount a mountain. Now, chariots were a weapon of war used specifically by the Philistines. They were known for their chariots and for their acumen in using chariots in war. But what they could not do is take a chariot up a mountain. Anything else? So y'all have covered a bunch. One of them is his appearance. I mean, why show up to David if, unless he had an ulterior motive? Why did he steal the crown and the armulet? I mean, he tells us why, but you can tell that there's a motivation behind it. He knows that it will be precious to David. Anything else that you can think of? I mean, think about his appearance, physical appearance. We're going to get to that in a second. The question was, if he was an Amalekite, why was he mourning like an Israelite? But you've hit the point. It looks fake. This Amalekite looks like he tore his clothes and put dirt on him after traveling 100 plus miles to get to David. This looks like a setup. It doesn't look right. Now, we know that, but David doesn't know that. The only thing David knows is what this guy told him. But as people who are looking at the narrative not in it, we know the backstory. We know what really happened to Jonathan and what really happened to Saul. And we know that this guy is lying. He didn't, and we're going to get to that in a second. So he took the armulet, he took the crown, and he brings it to David, and he presents it to him. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. Because, see, their mourning was real. What they felt was real. Their response was right. It was fitting for them to do it. 
And they mourned and they wept and they fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. So the proper response from David happens. The proper response that you see in his men is, is what happens here. They should tear their clothes. They should mourn. They should fast. What they did was appropriate. What the Amalekite young man did was not appropriate. What he did was lie and try to use it for his own good. But I want to put the brakes on here and say, if I were David, I don't know that I could have mourned. I mean, seriously, if I'm being dead level honest with you, I would be dancing like the lollipop guild and the munchkins. I would have been exuberant. I would have been overjoyed. I, I, would, have, I, I would have been dancing in the streets like they do when the wicked witch is dead. How is it that David, who has been mistreated and abused, who has been lied about and scorn-ridden, who has been living in caves and faced death over and over again, how is it that in this situation he has the response of true mourning? He has the response of truly feeling bad about the death of not only Jonathan, his best friend, but also Saul, who persecuted him. Guys, this is a lesson for us, I think. All throughout this narrative, we are told that David, uh, starting with, with his change in view, we're told that, that David begins this journey of being, being God's person and living out the truth of God's ways on earth. He becomes kind of an example for us. He's an archetype for Christ, actually, in some ways. And so we see this David responding in a godly way. But I, if I'm honest with you, I'm not like that. If I'm honest with you, if someone has treated me like they treated, uh, like Saul treated David, I would not be mourning him. But I think it shows us what it really looks like, what it really looks like for us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. And is this, not, is this not a healthy picture of what that looks like? I mean, Jesus teaches us that, that we should pray for our enemies and for those who persecute us, and that we should love them as Christ loves them. And we see in David's actions that he does that. And so the first point for us, I think, is we need to take a step back and ask ourselves, do we really love our enemies? Do we really pray for those who persecute us? Is there someone in your life that you've held a grudge against? Is there someone that you abhor? Is there someone that is hard for you to even look at, to think about, and definitely to pray for? And if so, maybe we need to do a gut check. David as an example, 
shows us how to love our enemies. And David said to the young man who told him, now, you said you're a Malachite, but where do you come from? That's a different question. It's not a question about his ethnicity. He knows he's an Amalekite. It's not a question about his allegiance either. He knows he's an Amalekite, which makes him untrustworthy. This is a question more specifically about exactly who are you and why are you here? We can see in David's questioning here that this almost becomes interrogational. It really is almost like it is a, it's a trial. Where do you come from? And the young man answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. Now, what's lost in our English translation is the importance of this word sojourner. It actually means resident alien. I'm a resident alien. I'm not from here. I'm an Amalekite, but I live amongst the people. And in legal sense, that means that he was to obey all of Israel's laws. Why do you think David asked this question? Not rhetorical. Why is it important to know that he's a sojourner? Wait, say that back there. (laughs) Because of the next question, which is, how is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? See, he has to establish that he falls under the justice system of Israel and isn't just a foreigner. It's a legal proceeding. He's on trial. And David's about to bring the hammer. So David, in the middle of his morning, stops and takes a step back and goes, okay, wait a second, who are you again? Oh, I'm a sojourner. Oh, so you fall under our legal system. You know how this is supposed to work. So everything that Leviticus says about, our, about, about someone in charge and someone in control, that falls, you fall under that. So, if that's you, if you're really a sojourner, if you are who you say you are, and you admit that you're part of our system now, this is just turned into a legal proceeding with huge ramifications. So, if that's who you are, how is it you are not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men, the guy, we don't know what he answered. We don't know if he just sat there in shame. We don't know if he tried to spin another tale or lie. We just go straight on to the sentence. Then David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. Verse 16, And David said to him, This is the kid that he just struck down and died. He said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. So this is an interesting construct that you see in Hebrew, particularly in uh, historical narrative. It's, it's called an AXB construct. So if you go back, and I'm geeking out on you here, but this is important to understand what it is. So the A is, um, verse uh, would be verse 14. The X is the execution, and then the B is 16. The X 
this isn't a, a time sequence. It doesn't, this isn't all happening at one time. They do this for, um, for a, a, a narrative climax. So what, the actual way it should have gone was, he asked, why were you not afraid to kill the anointed? Then he says, your blood on your own head, uh, you've testified against yourself and, and you killed the anointed, and then they would have killed him. But they save it and they twist it because they want you to settle on this verse 16. This is the most important point. That's why they construct the verses like this. Your blood is on your hand for causation. Your own what mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. So even, even though he did something that benefited David, even though this young man, according to his own lie, did something that opened the door for, for growth and potential and power for David, it was the wrong thing. And so David had him killed. Because he killed the Lord's anointed. Now you think about that from this perspective. What has he just handed to David? Two items. Armulet. Those were the two identifying marks of the king, period. Those meant you were king. So if this guy is willing to kill Saul, and he's an Amalekite, and he's obviously lied, what's keeping him from killing me? If he's not afraid to kill one of the Lord's anointed, he might kill me. So there's also some pragmatism here if you think about it, but ultimately that's not what drives David here. What drives David is justice. It is wrong to kill the one that God's anointed, period. So, we see from David two things that I think are very interesting, particularly for our current culture. One, a love for enemies. Someone who was willing to go the extra mile even for his enemy, for someone who persecuted. But on the other hand, he was also clearly driven to doing the right thing and justice. And he held both of those in tension. And I think that we need to learn how to do that in our culture. That we need to learn to love and to tell the truth in love. I think that we need to learn how to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. But also, that doesn't mean that we just let whatever happen, happen. It doesn't mean that we just lay down. It doesn't mean that we just forget what truth is. It doesn't mean that in our loving others that we have to give up any space on what's true. Does that make sense? Because I think that's the hard tension that we live in in our culture. And I think that David's a perfect example of what it looks like. I think Jesus was the perfect example of what it looks like. He loved, but he still had boundaries. He loved his enemies and prayed for those who persecuted him, but he still said this is right and this is wrong. He still had boundaries. 
And I think David is showing us that we can do the same thing. So guys, I know our culture is way different than it was even 20 years ago. I know it's way different than it was when a lot of you grew up. But we need to learn in this space, in our culture, how to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, but then still keep our boundaries. Because God's truth is truth. And we have to live in that tension. But we can do it without being angry and ugly and and without destroying other people. The king is dead. Ding dong, the king is dead. But not for David. For David, it was truly sad. I think David viewed Saul through the eyes of God. And I think he invites us to view others the same. So instead of celebrating, let's love. We hope you found this week's message meaningful and impactful. And as always, don't just hear it, but put it into practice. Until next time, have a good one.